general nerdery. Who's that stumbling around in the dark? State your business or prepare to get winged. I just really wanted to do that line. Uh, welcome to this week's general nerdery. Uh, this week it is me, Tyler, and... If you listen to our last episode, you'll know that Zach isn't here. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, Zach isn't here. But, but I am. Yui, our very first guest, is back. Hooray! Yay! Welcome back, Yui. It's good to be back. In case people are, are new and missed the first time you were on with our Pod Full of Mando episode, uh, maybe just reintroduce yourself a little bit. Especially because, like, I still don't know you all super well, so I can't do For that. For sure. Uh, my name is Yui. I know Thumbs as he is my knight, and he lives with me, and I've known him for a long time. Uh, and I have a very special interest skill that we're going to be talking a lot about today. But you said you have some news first. Well, first... Before we get into the news, what have you been ingesting with uh, everything going on? What's What's been your media uh, intake to maybe offset some of <laughs> this all? Um, well, <laughs> I have been mostly just preparing for what we're going to be talking about today. And that's been a lot of Tarantino films, which I'm not super happy about, but... We'll get into that later. Uh, beyond that, uh, actually, mostly the news. Uh, a lot of live streams of protests. A lot of... Uh, lots of civil engagement with governments and police. I know that's not media, but it's what I've been ingesting. Right. No, it's... No, that's, that's fair. That's been a lot of what I've been interesting as well um i did find time to finish this season of the legends of tomorrow <laughs> so that was fun because it's a super fun show and i'm really glad that they kind of pulled it together at the end because i thought it was a mess season till the <laughs> last two episodes and then it got super good yeah. um I'm i don't know and then for my other podcast, I finally watched the 1997 Japanese animated psychological thriller, Perfect Blue. Oh, I love that. And am absolutely in love. Oh, Perfect Blue is so, so good. good. <laughs> so many questions about identity in that movie. <laughs> such, such good mm -hmm. times. Um, all right. I guess I got a little bit of news, and then we can go heavy into the Tarantino off, because... I, I don't want to make it so that you made yourself <laughs> mad for this long for oh, nothing. Oh, man. And I made myself so mad. Some of this I'm sure that we're going to end up talking about also next week when Zach's back. So I'm going to kind of go quickly mm -hmm. through it. The biggest thing from this week is uh, DC Comics has completely cut ties with Diamond. Um, and we have kind of been talking about Diamond and their distribution as an ongoing thing. And this might be one of the biggest shakeups in the comics world in quite a while. I know you don't have too yeah, much to Yeah, I say don't really that, know probably, comics but. too well, even though I'm currently sitting in front of an entire wall of them. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the main thing is Diamond basically is the, 
the main distributor for like 90% of the comics industry. And one of the big two just pulled out. Oh, okay. So yeah, that is significant. Who knows what that's all going to lead to. I'm sure me and Zach are going to talk about it way more in depth next week. By next week, there might be even more info because right now it's still kind of new and everyone's like, oh, shit. (laughs) Okay. So that just happened. Let's see. Uh, Tying back into the first time you were on this show, in some good news, Mandalorian Season 2 is still on schedule despite coronavirus. That is good news. We were actually just rewatching some of the first few episodes of Season 1 last night. Yay! I need to do that myself. (laughs) Yeah, apparently... They've been doing well enough with doing everything remotely that everything is still planned for October. I so have something to look forward to. If anybody to. was worried about that, yay! Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, this is kind of neat. Criterion, uh, the Criterion Channel, has removed the paywall uh, for most of its uh, movies from black creators. Oh, wow. Um, I think there's probably still some some rights and licensing issues and all that so that they weren't able to do it for all of them quite mm-hmm. yet. Uh, but uh, things from Julie, films from Julie Dash, William Greaves, Kathleen Collins, Charles Burnett, Kalik Allah, uh, Maya Angelou, and more have all been made free to watch. Interesting. Does that mean that they would then get like ad revenue then returned to them? I'm not positive how that's all working out. I do know that along with this, Criterion is donating quite a bit mm-hmm. of money. Uh, and more of those details can be found over uh, on links on like their social media and stuff. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what's all going out there, but at least they're making this uh, the art from these creators more easily available. Yeah, which making is it always accessible and visible. Uh, Exactly. Um, I just hope that they there is something in place so that they're getting paid as yeah, well. Yeah, for but. sure. Hopefully. That is a good first step. Uh, that is definitely something. Right. That's a good first step. Kind of ties in. I mean, I know you like some film. <laughs> it's kind of why yeah. you're here. So. I mean, I did go to school for it. I guess I should have mentioned that when I was introducing myself. Like, I did go to school for... Uh, film theory. I didn't graduate with a degree, but I did go for like like five years. Spent a lot of time critically analyzing film, and that's a lot of what I've been doing this week. So, And then two two more things that kind of tie in partially to to possibly this week and what we're going to be talking about, as well as just the fact that me and Zach have been uh, continually dancing around the fact that you're, in a lot of cases, people's faves might be problematic. <laughs> yes, I, I am very well known for pointing out that maybe a lot of Hollywood directors, even some of my favorites that I acknowledge, are maybe weird and manipulative and do some kind of questionable tactics in how they direct their films um on a on a more problematic and just got fired from a show bent uh hartley sawyer who has been playing the elongated man on the flash 
just had some pretty vile tweets from a bit earlier in his career come to light uh, and has been fired. Mm -hmm. Uh, But beyond that, uh, J.K. Rowling keeps kind of putting her foot in her mouth. Oh, my God. Like, I... And saying a bunch of shit that she needs to not be saying. Like, I... The last time she started dancing around, like, transphobic issues, I was like, all right, I'm I'm ready to drop this. And then, then she started off on her... On what she said recently, and I... Mm, I'm so upset and disappointed... And also mad and ready to erase all existence of Harry Potter memorabilia from my life, which includes the tattoo on my arm. Oof. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I don't I don't have the exact statement in front of me. If you if you out there haven't been keeping caught up, uh, Rowling already has a history of not great statements and recently was making fun of some you know inclusionary language that is really the way that we should be making moving forward and god it sucks when people suck and they make things you like yeah no it's it's incredibly disappointing and yeah that's very relevant to what we're going to be talking about today especially with uh some of the research that i did to prepare for this with the theories that i built from watching the movies that we watched um, yeah, I, I don't want to like dwell on it too much, but I had to at least bring it up, especially cause she's, uh, such a big name and genre and just continually does this bullshit. Yeah. And it's like, especially, uh, at this we're going to have to get to that. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, we'll probably have to get to that. Your fave is problematic episode sooner than later, possibly. but <laughs> cause I am about to eviscerate. Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> well, before that happens, we're going to just take a quick break, get set for this. Ooh. I'm going to try to get braced to not cry. <laughs> and we're going to go into this Tarantino. Oh, yeah. All right. So before we get super started in earnest, I wanted to start with two apologies. Uh, one, because, uh, the whole point of you being on here is you don't like Tarantino. So I've, I've hated him for a long time. So I had a super enjoyable week and you had to put yourself through some shit in order just to be ready for this. And I super, super appreciate it. (laughs) So I'm super sorry that you had to go through it, but like, thank you. (laughs) Uh, and the other apology is we mentioned it a long time ago and we still have not got you on fried squirms to talk about the lighthouse and that will have to be rectified soon. That is okay. Like I am down to talk about that movie whenever and rewatching that one is not going to be torture. So this is fine. And if I had stayed in school, this would have been my thesis. So it's just like me building that, but getting to defend it in real time and not having to spend six months of my life writing it. <laughs> uh, there we go. So that's the thing. Ultimately, I mean, the tagline we usually use for our show is it's a show about liking things. 
when you <laughs> like something, it tends to be a pretty strong emotion. That doesn't mm-hmm. always conflate with other strong emotions. So whereas <laughs> I like Tarantino, you like film in gen- general. Mm-hmm. And for you, that ends up becoming a conflict. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in uh, this case. Uh, and so uh, it's only fair to honor all the emotions that liking things brings up. Uh, and being able to talk about these things without, like, killing each other. <laughs> uh, you are probably way more, uh, way more prepared for this than I am. I will admit from the get-go that I don't have the expertise necessary to truly defend Tarantino in a way that I would like, other than I'm going to be saying, yeah, but I really like this quite a bit. But I'm <laughs> super, super excited to actually hear you break apart some of these things because I do talk about movies on a weekly basis and I'm always excited to hear other people break them down uh, especially when they know their shit better than me (laughs) and I mean I will admit I have been out of school since 2013 and even though I haven't really ever been able to turn off that critical aspect of my brain when watching movies or film or media, like even when I was on the Mando episode, like I was bringing up a few film terms that you guys were like, "Oh wait, what? I didn't even catch that." <laughs> and for me, it was just like, "Yeah, that's like easily automatic. You see that." And so I understand that my brain is a lot more trained and attuned to look for those smaller, minute details, like a uh, frame placement and like a uh, specifically. I just watched uh, Kill Bill this morning, so that one's the most fresh in my mind. Uh, mm. He was utilizing a lot of what's known in mise-en-scene as frame constraints. And so he would create a frame within a frame. And usually you would have a character pass through that to symbolize some sort of change of like character or attitude or shifting from one phase to the next and he would always set that up but then always like take away that change of like the follow through of that and it was pissing me off so much (laughs) (laughs) Uh, ah. so although Tarantino doesn't have as big of a filmography as quite a few other directors his movies are quite long on average, so we did constrain ourselves a little bit for this and focused on rewatching three in particular uh, for those of you at home that are wondering why, why we're going to be talking about some things very particularly. Uh, and that was Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill Volume 1, and Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose we could just kind of go in chronological order if you wanted to start in on ripping in uh ripping apart (laughs) pulp fiction all right let me flip to those notes sorry i kind of broke out of form there just had to pop off and just fucking hate on him (laughs) sorry i'm gonna say also uh upon these rewatches uh pulp fiction is probably the one that i would defend the least even though it's considered still by many to be his best Interesting. I'm not as impressed with it uh, in more recent years, although it was very formulative for me. So, 
and I had watched this one back in uh, in college in one of my film theory classes, and I still have the notes from that. Actually, oh wow, yeah, that's awesome. no, I busted out my college notes for this. <laughs> and uh, I noticed on this watch through, a lot of people like to point to the non-linear storytelling as an example of why Pulp Fiction is this masterful example of well-crafted storytelling and like you can tell that each piece fits into each other and that it is a chronological story because of all these little easter eggs and like yeah that is true but I feel like a lot of people have proven that had it been depicted in a more chronological order you can still like use the like radical editing uh, convention to like especially for that one scene where Vincent Vega is like tripping out on heroin and like it's intercut with the scenes of him shooting up and then him driving and that like mm-hmm. collapsing and changing of that time space to amplify the drug effect like that's fine like that's acceptable but there's no real defense or argument on, like, why it was all placed like that. And I feel like you could have built up a lot more subtext had it been more chronologically sequenced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I said, this is the one that I'm probably going to defend the least. Uh, I really like the the weird kind of circular format, but... There's not really a good reason for it, other Mm -hmm. than it's, um, it kind of, in a meta way, it sets up for the rest of Tarantino's career, because Mm -hmm. it makes you search for those Easter eggs to sort of put it all in order, whereas part of the fun of watching a Tarantino film in general is just looking for the Easter eggs as to where he's pulling all of his inspiration from. Yeah. No, I got really bored with uh, the callbacks to, like, I know he's mentioned it in interviews that, like, all good filmmakers, like, steal. They don't homage, and if they say that, they're lying. And I fucking hate how he talks because he's such a pretentious asshole. Um, Sorry. No, that's fine. I... I'm also... I'm here to defend his films. I'm not going to defend the guy himself. He... I kind of like listening to when he's full-on nerding out because it's obvious how much passion he has for film, but he does come off like a fucking pretentious asshole. And there's <laughs> other things about him that aren't, aren't great, so. <laughs> True. And also, in re-watching this, it started up my theory that I have built through watching, re-watching these three films, uh, that he utilizes the juxtaposition of either a clean image and dirty language or the reverse of like a dirty image and clean language or like some sort of reversal of like subversion of the norm of what you would expect based on Mm. what you're seeing okay like um in uh in pulp fiction specifically let me look at my notes i know i've written it like every single (laughs) one of these has an angry face with the word feet in large letters next to it (laughs) 
Oh, I'm so glad we didn't watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because his foot fetish is on more display in that one than any of the others combined. Thank you so much for not making me have to sit through that. But I will say, I will say in Pulp Fiction, there is the most acceptable use of a foot shot because it's at least used thematically. It's used well okay. thematically in the introduction of Mia Wallace. Oh, yeah. Like, because she, before this point, even with the story kind of like broken and chopped up, we've heard a lot about both of them, like both Mia and uh, Vincent, but we haven't seen like in person, like their face. So they're kind of like these like deity like figures. Mm-hmm. And then, especially with how Mia introduces herself, like with that sort of like chopping up, well, there's sort of this gross objectification of her with like the weird singular body parts but I know it adds to the mystery of the character and so when we do see her bare feet in that shot leading up to like the pan up of her body from behind that one is a little bit more acceptable than all of the other ones that I watched like (laughs) uh, I hate that one makes sense uh, a lot of his don't. Mm-hmm. That one, no, that one, yeah. I I had never thought about it in those terms before. That one does make sense, though. It just, uh, I'm, dude likes I feet. Did, they show up. I've kind of just cut, gotten used to it. <laughs> I, I don't I notice the feet to. half the time anymore. I refuse to. I will point it out and point out how it's super, super gross all the time. And... <laughs> Like, especially when it's unnecessary. Uh, yeah, and I'm not a fan of feet. I'm personally not a fan of feet. So I guess there are times, like I said, once upon a time in Hollywood, it is way weirdly on display. And mm. that time I could not ignore it, uh, no matter how hard I tried. But <laughs> oh, Another thing that I have noticed that like a lot of the reasons why people would claim that Tarantino fits into the auteur theory, like with the use of the feet shot, the low angle trunk shot, uh, dealing with like revenge stories and those callbacks to classic and film making genres, like things like that. Mm-hmm. And that meta acknowledgement of filmmaking within his films, like those are all his sort of like auteur signatures. Those are all the reasons why I hate his films and because he uses them in the same way every single film it feels like listening to the same song with different instruments okay that's really interesting because I (laughs) on the flip side of that that's one of the things that always brought me in especially when I first started uh, watching Tarantino when I was younger Uh, this move uh, Pulp Fiction taught me what a TV pilot was Mm-hmm. And brought me into that that extra bit of knowledge, um, and gave me something that I could I could look up and start to find out more things about. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's always been more of like a when he acknowledges filmmaking and different aspects within. It's always been like, oh, cool! Like I get to see this little part that I don't normally get to, but it's also being worked into the plot in a way where. 
it's not jarring me out of it necessarily. So, but that hinges on like another part of something I criticize Tarantino about is his long format dialogue. And I understand he does it for a reason, but a lot of times it becomes tedious. And I know a lot of people will write off that criticism of like, oh, you just don't understand it. Like it's well-crafted dialogue and they're just like showing their humanity. Mm. But there, there comes a certain point where I've lost track of the rest of the movie, so I have to like actively think of what I watched before because I got so distracted by this mundane conversation that I've forgotten the rest of the story. <laughs> and I, I know that's just my personal problem, and because I know I don't like his films at all... And so I get extra bored while watching them. But there are a lot of times where it is really hard for me to stay engaged with the movie because of it. I I can understand that. I, I'm all in for his, just all of his dialogue, but parts of it get self-indulgent. Yeah. And don't need to be there. Even even if you are showing off the character's humanity, like that that's the line that I'm talking about of like, yes, some of it is okay and acceptable and some of it is very well crafted. I will give him that. He can write some pretty funny lines and he's pretty like I did laugh at some parts in Django Unchained, and I'll get to that later. But yeah, one of my notes on Pulp Fictions is like Oh my god, these character expositions get boring. Um, yeah. This one, I find, uh, I personally, and we'll get to it, find Kill Bill to be a little bit more self-indulgent than this one. Django may be the least of them all. Uh, some so of it, though, like, I, I honestly can do without, like, I don't know, half of Fabienne's dialogue. Yeah, she felt like the most unnecessary character. Her entire point was to have forgotten the watch. Yep. And to be yelled and, at. Yeah. And uh, um, that also kind of clues into his like gross misogyny and whatever. Yeah, I. This movie feels of the time period, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, it's the one that I will defend the least upon rewatch. I really, I love it too. And that's why, like, I've watched it enough times to have problems with it as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, later, like, well, once again, we'll get to it. I don't have as much of a problem with some of it in Django Unchained. Quentin giving himself the N-word in this movie. Oh my God, like, uh. I know he loves to defend his use of language in like, well, I'm writing these characters that are amoral and criminals. And so that would mean that they would use this type of language. So that means I can use this type of language. And it's like, do you have to, though? I think <laughs> I think he does it better as his career goes on. And I don't know if I can even 
for for being as famous for using it as he is, I don't know if he uses the word any more than maybe once in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with mm-hmm. his latest movie. He, as time goes on, I feel like he gets better at actually trying to embody that statement in the way that he defends himself in the press. These early movies, I don't buy it as much. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I remember watching this movie kind of close to when it first came out on video and not being shocked at all because it was kind of just the way I heard people talk at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it didn't stand out till a lot more recently. And sure. maybe that's only my own personal experience because I did grow up in a town of like 600 people in bumfuck Montana. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I didn't watch this until I think, yeah, when I was in college. And so for me, I also grew up in like mostly small towns in Montana, like also Fort Collins, but not for a long time. And mm. so it was still like really jarring for me to like see this. I see and hear this language and stuff but I also I don't know there's some weird like inherent revulsion that I got from like watching his films and just hearing how people would describe his films and it's not that I am opposed to like graphic things like I like horror films I like even really weird cerebral films that get kind of messed up all the time so it's not that I'm opposed to that. But there's something else that just makes my skin crawl every time I watch one of these movies. <laughs> um, ultimately, I find Pulp Fiction to... This will kind of be my my entire theme for kind of how I like Tarantino. He's, in general, like my favorite gateway drug And Pulp Fiction was my gateway drug to him in general. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But at this point, for me, it's a lot of nostalgia. There are, like, some of the lines and shit I still fucking love. I quote alongside Jules some of his fucking lines. (laughs) Say what again, motherfucker? I mean, yeah, English motherfucker, do you speak it, is a wonderful line. And... I will admit that it has been an iconic, like, you know, held up masterpiece in, like, film critique worlds. And, like, it has changed the cinematic landscape from its time forward. But that can be said of a lot of other terrible movies. (laughs) Right. Um, While we're on Pulp, before we move on to to Kill Bill... um, or if there's a lot more you want to say about there's, I mean, because it's a what two hour forty minute movie. There's a lot that we're just sort of skipping through. Uh, but <laughs> um, is there anything you were surprised to find you liked more than you expected to? Even if it's not like truly like, but maybe you're like, oh, okay, so that wasn't bad. I know a lot of people give like uh, Butch like the Butch Fabian storyline, a lot of flack and be like, oh, it was unnecessary. Like, unfortunately, that felt like the most cohesive part of the story for me as presented. Mm -hmm. 
Um, even though, yeah, it contained the most kind of graphic sequence. And yes, that's always really hard to watch. And yeah. And I, yeah, I kind of don't really want to talk about that sequence just because of how graphic it is. And it feels like everybody has gone over that a lot. And mm -hmm. I don't feel like I need to. Because I have a lot of opinions about uh, politics of representation. And I will get into that more with um, Django Unchained. Uh, I will, like, I was clued into this one sort of subtext theory of when viewed chronologically, you could read some of the characters and situations as a sort of like odyssey like journey okay um where uh let's see if i remember this correctly like if you view marcellus wallace and mia wallace as like kind of a like hades and persephone like pairing like mm. in that sort of mythology and then all of the interactions they would have all of them okay. sort of revolve around a sort of... Oh, shit. I should have keyed up more references for this or written down more things. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I know You're I watched... already like five times more prepared than I am, so... Because <laughs> I remember watching this watch through of Pulp Fiction with that in mind, and I'm like, yeah, that does kind of make sense. Where... Uh, but now, of course, I've forgotten all about it because I'm so mad about watching Kill Bill this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Because, yeah, because let's see. Cause it, it I'm just trying hinged. to think about it because I, then I have to reorder it just to make sure that it's chronological in my head. So I'm like, OK, so it's like the first part of chapter four, then chapter two, then chapter six. Mm hmm. And if you you like uh Jules and Vincent as like the Hades underlings and they have that sort of religious experience. Well, at least Jules has the religious experience and then passes And wanders it on off to, to become a Jedi. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then he then passes that revelation through the the briefcase to oh geez. Uh to Pumpkin. Like the fucking oh, Tim Roth character. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> pumpkin and, and honey bunny. Yeah. And he sort of passes that revelation off to them to then change their lives. But And then the rejection of that revelation through Vincent ends up in his death via Butch, who is that sort of like Odysseus character who has to go through the trial by fire to save... Like the person who was going to kill him in that sort of like repaying of the debt. Mm hmm. Hmm. I think. Yeah. That all lines up. Yeah. I kind of like that. Shit. That was the only other fun thing that I learned about that. But again, that's uh, all just reading the subtext through that lens. Mm hmm. Uh, do you have yeah. any theories about what's in the briefcase? Uh, 
I mean, especially when paired with uh, what I was just talking about, I do like the theory of it's Marcellus's soul. Oh, that's always been um, a fun one. Yeah, and especially with like the the like callback to the band aid on uh, the back of his neck, it's like, oh yeah, of course. So for me, with especially with that subtext reading, that's what's in the briefcase for me. And okay. beyond that, I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I kind of thought that would be the point. Uh, anything else on this one, or should we move to Kill Bill? Uh, only other thing is, I really wish we had gotten more of the wolf, because especially on this rewatch. Because the wolf is amazing? Yes, I want an entire movie of the wolf, and even if Tarantino directed it, I would possibly still watch it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, the wolf is so good. Uh, but oh, I think so that's good. all I had to say on Pulp Fiction. Yeah, for me, at this point, it's a lot of nostalgia. The stories are fun, but they don't go anywhere super revelatory for me in any way. <laughs> I like a, if if Tarantino's my gateway drug, then this was my gateway drug to him. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, Kill Bill. All right. Like I have written in my notes. I hated this movie. Like, I'm so sorry to everyone who likes this and thinks it's cool. I hated it. Uh, okay. Like, I know he likes to present it as, like, this female empowerment movie and storyline of her gaining everything she lost through revenge and, like, this bloody tirade and whatnot and it's just the cycle of revenge repeating itself and it's like sort of phrased at several points throughout the movie like with uh the daughter nikki like seeing her mom be killed in front of her and then like the backstory of uh oranishi like seeing her parents be killed like it's all there we get it like it just continues it's a cycle and Criminals get criminals and blah. blah, blah. Uh, I almost stopped watching at the point where, like, she's about to wait. Like, she'd just woken up from the coma and then she heard the people coming. And you're supposed to believe that it uh, is Daryl Hannah's character, but then it's not. And oh, it's the <sighs> other guys. Yeah. And I know, like, with how that sequence ends, it's supposed to meant to be like, oh, well, she, like, killed them, so it's fine. No, no. the implications <laughs> in that scene are super yicky, because it's been going on for a bit. In a sort of reference to that dichotomy of uh, image and language, like, you have, like, that nurse character who's supposed to be, you know there to protect people and like is running this gross system and like you see the like type of vaseline that he gives them that is absolutely fucking disgusting because like it's just a representation of like that mismatched either image and language or whatever and how he presents it doesn't make it okay <laughs> <laughs> ah! um I hadn't also, watched Kill Bill in probably about five years now at this point. This is another one where 
upon rewatch, I'm not as enamored with the entire thing, but especially compared to Pulp Fiction, there's moments in it that I'm in love with. Mm-hmm. But uh, once again, it's a lot in the sense that Quentin Tarantino is like my favorite gateway drug. Um, without seeing this movie when it came out, I probably wouldn't have watched nearly as much like samurai movies as I would have. Mm-hmm. Looking up stats behind and like who worked on this movie was uh, like what led me to watching Drunken Master for the first time since uh, some of the choreography in this was done by uh, Wen Wo Ping. Mm-hmm. And upon a modern rewatch, parts of it are just icky. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, I'm trying to think of all the good things that I can try to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his continued use of Dutch angles in this movie. Like, I know he loves to be like, oh, I, I laugh in the face of regular film conventions. It, I know I watched a little bit of like some breakdowns of part two just to find out like kind of what happens but it would all then allude to that lead up of like yeah you're the killer and that superman speech and things like that so he he loves to say that he doesn't use classic film conventions but he totally does i'll be honest uh dutch angles usually stick out to me just because of how much i i loved watching the 66 batman series when i was growing mm -hmm. up I don't notice many of Tarantino's Dutches. His are very, very slight. They're not always really intense. But they're there. Like, every time you have a flashback to the black and white sequence of the wedding, mm -hmm. it's always skewed. And usually a lot of times when you see the bride, it's skewed. Or at least, like, there's those lines in the frame to create that skewed angle to imply that, like, we're not getting the full picture or there's something off about this retelling. Um, yeah. <laughs> to me, to me, the strength and my love for this movie comes, as I already mentioned, mostly in moments. Um, his moments of obvious homage in this movie, I don't mind. They're, they create some really neat-looking sequences uh, like I said, it was my gateway to finding the originals of those sequences, and I love seeing it all put together. The, mm -hmm. I guess it wasn't as apparent in Pulp Fiction, but Kill Bill and Django is where like, it's worth bringing up the fact that I am like a million percent on board for hyper-violence. Um, real violence is very reactive something mm -hmm. gets hit or gets cut with a certain amount of force and that causes a reaction mm -hmm. whenever you get into the realm of hyperviolence, you get to direct the reaction and so many more options become opened up uh, often to the point of the absurd which is a lot of fun for me as well because then you get a lot of humor mixed with violence and that's not everybody's cup of tea, but it is definitely mm -hmm. mine. This is where he starts to play with that, and 
I have like the crazy 88s fight sequence. <laughs> I don't like a lot of the fight choreography, but a lot of the individual moments are amazing to me. Mm-hmm. The the basically the lady snowblood fight with Orenishi is fantastic for me. <laughs> um, the that- the reference to oh god, it's during the crazy eighty eight fight, but it's I can't remember the name of the movie it's referencing, but when she's in front of the uh, the solid blue, or not mm-hmm. solid, but because it's, it's the blue got black the, lighting and it's just uh, yeah. black silhouettes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't, I'm totally blanking on the name of the reference right now, but just kills it. So good for me. Uh, <laughs> the Daryl Hannah walking with uh, whistling twisted nerve. Fantastic. Mm. What's not fantastic is this is like, Tarantino at his absolute sloppiest paying homage. Okay, so was the constant continuity errors an affect of like the homage effect, or was that just him being lazy? Like what in particular? Okay, uh, there was a few where, like in the opening scene where she's fighting. Oh, Jesus, uh, I forget her Fox. Co- uh, yeah. Vernita Green. Um, yeah, when she's fighting her, there's that sequence where it's right after she has thrown the knife into her heart and then she like pulls it out and she's like, it's right before she turns around to face Nikki. And when she turns, Mm -hmm. the knife is not facing uh, Nikki. She still kind of has it hidden. But when you cut to the other shot, you can see that it is then behind her, like, in the wrong position when we switch to the other shot. Like, there's no way she could have her arm there and then there. Right. And then it's back to where it was in the original shot. And there was a lot of moments of that that I noticed. That, I actually attributed a lot of those uh, to the fact that, especially with this first Kill Bill... Fuck, like I said, I the Crazy 88 fight sequence is the highlight of it, but the <laughs> actual fight choreography in this movie isn't good. No. Um, partially because I think he was trying to have all of his actors do as many of their own stunts as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think what happened, especially with that loss of continuity, is he ended up having to just patch that together from a bunch of different takes. Mm-hmm. Because they were obviously doing a bunch of different cuts because they couldn't do long cuts on them. Yeah, and I noticed especially in that same fight with uh, in the beginning, like the cu- cuts were super choppy and it was meant to like heighten that sort of you can't really tell what's going on factor because of all those quick jarring sort of like at times it felt like it broke the 180 rule. If you know, mm. like, do you know what the 180 rule is? I've heard the 180 rule, but I don't know it, like, off the top of my head. I've heard this um, said. <laughs> just for reference, it if you would imagine a scene, there is going to be an invisible line where the camera mm. cannot cross over that line or whenever the shot is placed at a specific point, it's just going to look wrong to your eye. Okay. Like... You can place it at any point along 
uh, or away from the line. And that's fine. Like you can go to the right, you can go to the left, you can go back, you can go right up to it, but you cannot cross over it or it'll just look incorrect. Uh, I would say just being able to replay that fight really well in my head because the amount of times I have seen this movie, (laughs) even though it had been a bit, uh, it almost certainly breaks that probably a number of times. Yeah. Uh, Some of the continuity that stuck out to me was that uh, when they're lining up uh, while facing off with the knives and they end and you end up seeing the school bus behind them uh, through mm-hmm. the through the picture window. Yeah. They take like four times too many steps to actually get in that position from where they started. <laughs> I didn't actually notice that. So, wow. Maybe four times is is overblowing it a little bit too much, but like. Mm-hmm. It should have been two steps in there right there from where they start setting up that scene. Yeah. And that goes on for like eight more seconds until they're like <laughs> in that position. And I'm like, that that wasn't right. What? They're, why are their feet still shuffling? They're there already. Stop it. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's weird because this movie was like in a big way my intro into really paying attention to these things and now going back after I've seen it done so well um, mm-hmm. it's weird I I almost want to I brought it up a number of times if if people want to see a better done version of the Kratiazi8's fight sequence uh, watch uh, Takashi Miike's adaptation of Blade of the Immortal it starts with a fight with a guy taking on a hundred guards and it's a hundred times the better version of that fight. Hell yeah. Because I got super bored during that one. Um, <laughs> it's not a lot of guys just standing in the background waving around their swords like they're facing the fucking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then getting their legs chopped off because she's breakdancing too much. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of that still happens because it is one guy taking on a hundred people. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, Mike does it in a way that's much more kinetic and it feels like the only reason at times he is facing them one-on-one is because of how quickly he's managing to kill them. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the kinetic energy of the action flows a lot better in that. And I, anyway, I just fucking love that movie. I, I got done <laughs> watching that sequence and I had to pause this movie and go watch that first 10 minutes and then come back. So... <laughs> Oh, and then um, something that I had meant to bring up in the Pulp Fiction, but... uh, Oh, yeah. So he's talked about how he has his, like, in-universe universe, universe, where, like, uh, this, like, Kill Bill would be the type of thing that, like, characters in Pulp Fiction would go to the movies to go see. Right? Right. Okay. And so for me, that does forgive a lot of that, like really hyper-formalistic, over-stylized violence. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it makes me mad, because, <laughs> I don't know, it just feels like a really cheap justification of it. Mm. I don't know. You, you could still have this same story and have it, I don't know, not as intentionally going for camp 
and still have it right. be impactful. I don't know. Maybe it's just because um, I haven't seen all of the film, like all of those reference films that he's alluding to in that style. But I don't know. The the story format and the like 70s styling of films is still very apparent. And it's off-putting to me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's oh, see. also... Also, Kill yeah, yeah. Bill features the most unnecessary feet shot out of all three of these movies that we've watched. Oh, uh, okay. Which one would that be? I have. A, I'm trying to think of the feet shots in this movie real quick. Uh, the one I am thinking about is specifically when they go to the House of Leaves and like, right? It's the end of the yeah. movie and the band is playing and like you're everybody's dancing you're like okay yeah whatever and then like they cut back to the band and they're like, you're closer up and you're like oh they're all barefoot and yeah. then like sh she's singing and then it's hard cut to her feet and then hard cut back to whatever else we were doing and it's like why why do we need that it's no yeah, I knew it was going to be somewhere around there. I forgot that the five, six, seven, eights had their own foot shot. Like, I was trying to think. I was, I was thinking it was going to be because I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty I mean, sure my favorite speech in the movie starts with a foot shot. Does there's does it pan up when Orenishi does her speech? Does it pan up starting from her feet, or am I just imagining that? Yeah, like where she's like running across the table to go cut off uh, the guy's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It starts with feet shot. Well, no, I think it moves like her body is moving very like fluidly and then you see her feet moving very quickly. And then it's uh, to the head flying. So it's all like it's done in three three shots. Mm-hmm. I love that speech. Uh, I love that speech so much. <laughs> Also, unfortunately, the copy that I watched had no subtitles for the Japanese. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really hard to, uh, you know, understand parts of this movie. But I was I'd mostly imagine. watching for the, like, s overall shot method rather than, like, the language, I guess. But um, I know that probably leaves me out of a lot of key story context. And I am willing um, to admit that. I'm trying to think, uh, I'm trying to think of what you would have missed. Fuck, I don't know. Not with it right, without it being <laughs> right in front of me. Like, I definitely got the emotional tone of the scenes, just because of, like, how the language flowed. And mm -hmm. with having watched a bunch of samurai movies before this, because, like, even though I hated on Tarantino, like, I... I've still watched a lot of those classic samurai films. And so I understand the emotional tone that they're like kind of following. So it was easy to pick up through like context, even if I didn't understand the actual language. One of the things, see, Tarantino, part of why I like him is he just pulls together a lot of things I like. Like I always get happy when I see Gogo -Go come on screen just because mm -hmm. uh, Chiaki Kuriyama is in battle royale and i fucking love battle royale mm -hmm. and so does tarantino and that's why he got her to be gogo -Go. <laughs> <laughs> or seeing michael parks on screen because he worked with him in the 
in From Dusk Till Dawn because he wrote that and Robert Rodriguez directed and he went on. Michael Parks goes on to do one of the finest, the in my opinion, one of the finest performance, finest performances on film. God, I can't fucking talk. Uh, <laughs> in Red State that I've like ever seen. So I love. It's just Red weird State. when I'm like, I'm just like, oh look, Earl McGraw. Oh, he's from <laughs> From Dusk Till Dawn, and oh, it's Michael Parks, and look, there's Son Number One, and <laughs> oh, it oh. just makes me so happy. Um, was there anything, once again, like with Pulp Fiction, was there anything in this that you liked more than you were expecting? No. Eh, that's fair. Like, the, I'm trying to think of anything that I liked in this movie, and nope. All of my notes are just, like, weird, either fragments about, like, the the way the frames were constructed or my notes on how I really didn't like how this was going. And there's two angry faces in separate places, like one for the feet shot and one for like that scene where the police are like surveying the scene and they are, they're viewing what they believe is a dead body. And they're like looking at her disfigured face and they're like, look at how pretty she is. And Ah! Yeah. Like, uh, again, with the, like, the pairing of the, like, this is supposed to be a person of the law, and then, like, using that low derogatory language to, like, make that moral line a gray one and, like, muddy it so everyone is an amoral, like, gross person in their own way. And Although considering what we've been seeing from the law lately anyway. I mean, yeah, not entirely wrong. <laughs> I will say in this movie, um, the whole making the sword sequence might be one of the most self-indulgent things I've ever seen Tarantino do. And even I picked up my phone and just sort of tuned out during that like 10 minutes of the movie. Was that when like she went upstairs and then... Like, they were viewing all the swords, and he's like, I, uh, she was saying, give me a sword, and then he sort of just left? Yeah. Okay. And all the little bit before that, when she's first talking to him down and getting food and shit. And mm hmm You speak yeah. Japanese like we speak Japanese. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. I'm just like, I... I'm good. I think you just really wanted uh, Sonny Chiba to be in your movie. Yeah, and there's there's better ways you can do that. You could write um, better characters. <laughs> and then, and that's what, like I said, I that ties into the sloppiness of him wearing his inspirations on his sleeve in the Kill Bills is just. There's almost no acknowledgement between him, between this one and the second one, which we didn't, we didn't watch the second one for this, but mm -hmm. it is part of the same whole. Uh, basically switching mostly from, like, uh, Japanese media conventions in this to more Chinese in the, in the second one, and just sort of conflating them both together. Mm -hmm. Which I... I feel like he kind of did because that's how he was introduced to him because that's just kind of the way we were 
they were introduced in the West was all at the same time. You had martial arts movies just as a general whole, but yeah, no distinction on like weird. where it actually came from or the discipline. So, but yeah, right, even it's, just viewing the like viewing this movie and then seeing the scenes that I watched from part two, there is just a stylistic difference that is like, whoa, this is. This is supposed to be the same story, but it looks entirely different. Um, I do remember back from the time period when I originally watched this back in 2003, just me and all my friends that loved it so rabidly wanting to know what the bride's real name is at the end of it. <laughs> uh, that's something I, I don't know why that little mystery box worked so well. I still don't know why it worked so well, because it worked on me again, even though I know what her name is. I mean, even think of, like, the briefcase. He intentionally puts these unknowable mysteries in his movies that are never going to be solved. And that adds to the whole, like, mystery of his genius. And I'm over it. Well, at least with The Bride, we do find out her name. Mm -hmm. Beatrix Kiddo. But... Mm -hmm. But even knowing her name, I found every time they blanked it out in this movie, I was like trying to read lips. I'm like, is that what they're actually saying? <laughs> and I, it turns out I suck at reading lips. So <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then the movie that was weirdly kind of the inspiration for us doing this in the first place, <laughs> because uh, I have a tattoo on my leg that's a mashup of some art from. Morpheus from Neil Gaiman's Sandman and the chain from Django Unchained. <laughs> and you were over here and mentioned not liking Tarantino. And I'm like, look down at my leg, even <laughs> though I think I was wearing pants. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, like, I will admit, out of the three that we watched, for being a Tarantino film... And having the, like, common Tarantino-isms, I mm -hmm. disliked this one the, the least. least. <laughs> yeah, but I hated it a lot more for other reasons. Okay. Uh, let's start in on those. <laughs> All right. Um, so I, I feel like this movie suffers from the white savior complex even though it is supposed to be that superhero uh, like again revenge story to like empower our main character Django but it is all done through like the help and guise of the teacher through Dr. King okay and I don't know that I couldn't get over that, especially with watching this movie again three days after all of the uh, national protests started and like ugh, it made it really hard to watch this movie. I so that's that's definitely not a criticism I hadn't heard before and one that I have watched the film with in mind um, mm -hmm. Of all of these films we're discussing, I probably watched Django uh, ever since it came out, probably three or four times a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and I probably listen to the soundtrack at least once a month. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, 
it's not not there. I do think there's a lot more, especially when you rewatch it a lot of times. To me, <laughs> it reads, I don't think Quentin was trying to do this. And this is... Sorry, I'm fumbling all over my words because no I have worries. so many emotions coming at once. The biggest thing that that King Schultz does for him is finally provide the education that had been lacking previously. Uh, in mm -hmm. most of the scenes, Django uh, and all of the things that end up helping him out in the end is already a natural in and had never been given the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. um, what Schultz provides mostly is that opportunity. And in the end, once again, I, I don't think Tarantino was intending this, but especially uh, in light of things that are going on these days and growing up uh, as brown, I'm not black, but as brown myself, it's also a weird kind of warning that there's still only so far that you can trust white people so far sometimes. Because like, in the end, for... Schultz oh, almost to... fucks him over. As good yeah, of an I... ally as he tries to be most of the time, he can't get past his own shit in order to, to help someone and almost fucks him over. And then it ends up still being Django having to use all those things he learned to do it in the way that he suggested in the first place that his white ally wouldn't listen to and insisted that he knew better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, Django, I kept waiting Django for Django finally that. wins by doing his original suggestion, basically. <laughs> which is just, fucking kill him. <laughs> yeah. No, I kept waiting for the moment when uh, Dr. King was going to intentionally fuck over uh, Django. Like, mm. maybe that was just from, like, seeing Christoph Waltz in uh, Inglorious Bastards and, like, oh, he's gonna, like an evil character again but I don't know I kept waiting for that moment where there was going to be that shift in character in Dr. King but then he ended up dying so I was like oh hey I was wrong so I was surprised I think uh, Dr. King's an interesting character for me because he's the one whose my opinion has changed maybe not the most in all my rewatches but Oh, maybe the most, because everyone else is kind of straightforward. He's a mm -hmm. lot shittier of a person than he sort of seems upon the first couple times through because of how charming he is. Yep. Again, with the, like, di dichotomy of, like, language and image, like, he uses his, like, very flowery language to not only confuse the white Southerners, but also to, like, gain that power and influence by, like, code switching and, like, being in control of the situation at all times through language and through that, like, un like unassuming image of, like, oh, well, I'm just a dentist. You don't have to worry about me, but ha, bang, I've killed you. Um, especially now that you've pointed it out in those other movies, I will say that I do think this is the movie where this, where that dichotomy is most intentional, considering that oh, yeah. the dichotomy is completely Calvin Candy's character. You can't oh dress up God. shittiness. And he yeah, does everything he teeth. can. Yeah. He does everything he can to put on the the facade of being fancy, but he's just a country garbage. uneducated slave owning garbage. 
Yep. No, like that, that sort of behavior of like, even when talking to all the slaves, they're very well spoken, even if they aren't like well educated, they still speak plainly and clearly, unlike even the poor white southerners who mumble. And you can understand the slaves better than those other people because he's trying to reverse that image through that subversion of language and what you see. Um, God, and for me, like I said, I had Django is the one that I'm going to have the hardest time sort of fumbling my words through just because <laughs> I feel like I have a weird, I don't know if it's weird because I've heard other people describe it as well. Um, but a different relationship than a lot of my peers, even that I grew up with, with, uh, some of these, uh, black protagonists, mm-hmm. uh, once again, it's, they weren't ever for me. It's not mine. I'm not trying to lay claim. But growing up brown, surrounded by white people, during a it time period... It was something period, you could identify with. It was, it was something different. Um, yeah. Most of the time growing up, there wasn't a lot of Mexican-Americans. There wasn't a lot of Latinx people on TV. So mm-hmm. every time I could, I would watch the black shows. Mm-hmm. From all time periods, even. I remember, like, my dad being almost, like, I don't know. Uh, he found it kind of strange that I loved whenever TV Land would do a Flip Wilson marathon. <laughs> uh, but I would just be like, oh, shit, I'm going to watch all the Flip Wilson. And then I'm going to throw on some Family Matters and Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Because <laughs> uh, it wasn't, because it was closer to seeing me than I'd ever seen before. Yeah. And then... The problem with that is a lot of the times, especially in films that are considered film and not just movies, uh, the black experience is either of being inner city or being beaten up as a slave. Yep. And in that time period, the white savior thing was even more apparent. Oh, yeah. So this movie came along and gave me superhero black man uh Mm -hmm. putting on the guise of things that i grew up like i grew up in the west cowboy culture i thanks to my previous love of robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino from years before and the fact that they reference the original django like every single fucking movie they make Mm -hmm. seeing all of that come together this strong black man as Django, as a superhero killing the shit out of these fucking racist assholes. Oh, yeah, that was super satisfying. I'm not going to deny that. Like, I will um, give it credit. While still having all the dialogue that I've come to love from, from Tarantino and all these different references that are just these Easter eggs for my mind to just continually try to pull together while I'm watching... It was like my favorite fucking jigsaw puzzle of all time that still told a story. And I think it's super, super powerful laying it out on Front Street that you are literally putting a black slave in a Germanic myth. Mm-hmm. And something, something's awesome there for me, too. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. Like, out of... Out of all of the ones that we've watched, the one I would be most willing to rewatch would be Django. I will admit that. 
Like I, I would still probably like get bored and upset with a lot of the framing choices, uh, even though there is that, again, that use of the frame within frame technique, especially for the prison imagery in the opening shots. Mm, okay. Like uh, when they're walking along that sort of uh, row of trees, it's meant to like imply those prison bars like right before Dr. King shows up. Uh, and that was a really well-crafted like frame. I will admit that. There are a lot of very specific frames in this movie specifically that I really did like and could a- aesthetically appreciate. But I don't know. Again, with that like continued use of the like subversion of language versus image and like playing around with that that was a better a better example of it but again I couldn't get past the language even when like put into the 1800s time period so yes it is a lot more understandable that this would be the common language of that era but right. I don't know. Cause some uh what it I was I was watching a video uh I was watching when when Quentin uh Quentin did a interview with Sway over on Shade forty five. Uh hundred and nine mm-hmm. instances of the N word. Yeah. Even more than There's... Jackie Brown, which was an homage to black exploitation. Yeah. Um but more than I can't defend it in pulp fiction. In this movie, every time I feel like it, it's in a place where you're you're meant to feel it and be like, oh yeah, this is what's going on. This sucks. I kind of wish yeah. I wasn't he- having to hear this, but this is what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. Parts <laughs> of this parts of this movie stay with me in a big way. I, I part of it I did it to myself. I will st- I will tell this story real quick. The very first time I watched this movie. Opening day, December twenty fifth, twenty twelve. <laughs> Getting going and watching this on Christmas first off was weird anyway, but <laughs> me, me and and Jesse, also a friend of the show, he's been on. Uh, it was before we actually became roommates, but we decided to make some edibles for the first time, <laughs> and we ended up making them. Oh, probably about ten times stronger than we were really meaning to. Oh no! And really did not like do a good like test bite. We were just like, well, we made brownies. Let's each eat a brownie before we go to this. <laughs> the shit was like horse tranquilizer, and oh, no. I am, and I'm probably just like the deepest in like this super edible stoneness <laughs> that I had been maybe in my life at that point. And D'Artagnan gets ripped apart by dogs. Oh, geez. Yeah, that would be some shit to watch. And I don't know if I have ever disappeared further into a movie seat. <laughs> I can still feel that exact emotion that I was feeling at that time to this day. It was the the chemical helped <laughs> sear, <laughs> sear it in so well um yeah and it's he he hard. does build dramatic tension very well like and again paired with those long uh dialogue sequences that release through the dramatic tension via the 
really intense, sometimes gory action. And especially in that sequence, like it snaps you back into attention for a reason. And he's even said it himself that he like he particularly uses and scripts his movies to play the audience like an orchestra for those emotions. Well, and he uses he doesn't use a traditional score for like the same reason. Mm hmm. Like I said, I listen to this soundtrack once a month. Uh, and if I don't listen, that's probably on average because sometimes I'll just have it on for a week straight. But And this might be one of the better movies where he makes use of the fact that he grabs songs from all over. Mm -hmm. He stated before he doesn't like using uh, soundtracks made for his movies because then he's basically giving up that control to someone else. Uh, to put what their version of the music should be like over that scene when he can just pick a song that he knows makes him feel a certain way to put over that scene. Mm -hmm. He might have outdone himself unintentionally on this one because when Django is having to settle into th the role of black slaver on their way to, to Candyland... Uh, they throw on Rick Ross's 100 Black Coffins. Oh, yeah. Rick Ross is a correctional officer. Oh, man. That's a, that's one of Florida's finest right there, Rick Ross. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional, but upon rewatch, kind of knowing that, I was like, oh, shit. On mm, top probably. of... Probably. Right? On top of just beautiful use of... Uh, some of my favorite Western songs, uh, Sister Sarah's theme from Two Meals from Sister Sarah super jumps out. Mm -hmm. I oh, and I don't know. The, but there is one thing that I, I, I love this movie so much I had part of it tattooed on my leg. It also <laughs> has my least favorite thing in any Quentin Tarantino movie. What is that? Uh, during the gunfight where Django eventually gives up at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, the song that starts playing that's uh it's a mashup of the big payback and uh, a tupac song mm -hmm. i don't know why it's anyway that particular remix samples lines from the movie you're watching <laughs> and it's not edited around those lines so that they don't pop up and it bugs the fuck out of me that you're hearing <laughs> that movie be sampled in a song that's playing over that movie. Okay, because I totally thought that was just like them having flashbacks. I totally no. didn't pick up on that. Oh no! <laughs> no, it's that, that that song remix samples the movie. You can listen to it on the soundtrack and it plays the same exact way with the like that, and I like the way you die, boy. Like, oh no! <laughs> And it bugs the fuck out of me every time because otherwise I love that gunfight. But oh no! Oh fuck! Why? Why turn? Anyway. <laughs> and uh, something I just realized uh, that he often always has the same sort of intentional color theory usage, like in a lot of his like. Mm. Women characters are always coded in yellow, like especially like with Kill Bill, and then all of the flashback sequences of Hildy, she's usually in like yellow or white. 
Mm-hmm. Again, with the whole, like, he utilizes the same aspects in the same way, just like, it's like paint filling in a different color onto the same skeleton. Yeah, and, I could see that. Um, no, he does use the same brush strokes for almost every single one of his movies. Cause... And almost in the same timing and in the same context. Because even in Django Unchained, where there's no cars, there's still a low angle, like what would be considered his low angle trunk shot. Yes. Yes, there is. And there's one in Kill Bill. There's obviously one in Pulp Fiction. Like, it. it's really boring and derivative to see the same thing in the same context every single movie like uh, I know a lot of people who hate on Quentin Tarantino usually end up liking Wes Anderson and I myself fall into that category but you can see the evolution of Wes Anderson's style when he starts experimenting with those different formats like especially after he starts using uh, like uh, after Fantastic Mr. Fox, when he starts doing that specific positioning, you can see how that translates and affects his work from then on after. Mm-hmm. But you never really see that evolution in style with any of Tarantino's works. It's always the same beats, the same storylines. It's revenge. It's about amoral characters. And it's going to be hyper-violent, very stylized. He's a slave to always having to make sure that you recognize his homages. Yep. And it's partly what made me a fan, because it makes, when you get the homages, it makes you feel like you're part of a club. But you're right, it is extremely repetitive, because it means that every one of his movies, in a little bit of a way, is a spaghetti western, is in a little bit of a way a kung fu movie, and mm-hmm. to make it recognizable, he has to reuse certain things over and over again. And I don't know if that's like intentional pigeonholing or that that's just genuinely how he wants to make his art. But I I don't feel like he should be considered one of the greatest directors of our age for that. I don't think he should for just that alone. Maybe for Django. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Uh, I will say, in my opinion, there is a lot less of that in his latest Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we haven't, we didn't watch for this or anything. Um, It's, it's fine. He doesn't do a lot of that because for once it's not him making a Western, it's him making a fairy tale. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though it's based on the, like, real events? It, he, he changes the real events again. Okay, okay. As much as I I am a fan of him, I kind of come away from that one being like, I'm really glad he got to make such a personal movie, but it's not extremely exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, He grew up in Hollywood and has a great affection, obviously for movies, because if you if you get him on a nerd rant, it's an amazing bit of like film history. He knows (laughs) He's studied and knows so many little facts. It, it's astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one does away with a lot of what we see. He still uses a lot of the same camera shots, I'm sure. I don't didn't pay as much attention to that. But He often reverts back to just 
relying on that like two shot setup of like shoulder over shoulder like cut from scene one to scene two a lot and it's I found it really boring like come on dude you can do a lot more and then it makes those when he breaks away from that it makes those camera shots where uh, the continuous takes in Kill Bill were a lot more apparent because of that really heavy use of the two shot uh, two actor setup mm. and I don't know if you if you're capable of planning out and doing those continuous one take shots, why are you relying on really easy fallback work? Right. I I, I did point this out. He has so uh, when we were first talking about how we were going to do this, and because I was bringing up Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much anyway, I'll just get mm-hmm. this out of the way now. Because I have watched all of his stuff, because I am a fan, I do want to just say like. A couple sentences on each one. Reservoir mm-hmm. Dogs is all right. It's a great. <laughs> I mean, I, I whether or not you like Tarantino, I feel like most filmmakers don't have such a strong jump onto the scene, and it's awesome because of that. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the movie that uh, made the big giant reference to the 66 Django and what made me watch that in the first place. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think Reservoir Dogs was the first Tarantino film I ever watched. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's where I definitely started my like, there's something about this I just don't enjoy. <laughs> and it wasn't because of the like literal puddle of blood. And um, I couldn't explain it, and everybody just wrote it off of like, oh, you just don't get it. And then I spent my entire life building my theory, and now here we are. (laughs) Uh, Wrote True Romance, worth it for Gary Oldman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, We already went through Pulp Fiction. uh, Did Story on Natural Born Killers. Probably should have gotten the chance to direct it, but whatever he was still early in his career who knows how if that would have been different or not but uh four rooms too many people sleep on these days even if you don't like tarantino he only does one of the segments so everybody Mm -hmm. should go hit that because it is hilarious and fantastic (laughs) i mean Uh, i could tell when he did his segment in sin city and that was the one i liked the least uh his was jackie boy i think so yeah uh, Benicio del Toro in the car. Yep. Uh, yeah. I also hate. I also hate Benicio del Toro. So. I was gonna say I like that scene, but I feel like everything good about that scene, like Tarantino didn't have any hand in. It's because Benicio del Toro is going to town, just hamming mm-hmm. it up in that scene. So. <laughs> um, Jackie Brown. I feel like a lot of people also sleep on because. Uh, I found just bringing up the term black exploitation, a lot of people uh, automatically are turned off. Oh yeah, uh, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> uh, it gave some of the original super super strong characters for those communities, mm-hmm. and I th- I think there's a lot of 
it's it's bad that there was something called black exploitation maybe in the first place, but I think a lot of good came out of that genre anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that somebody was willing, especially in the '90s, to point that out, even <laughs> if maybe it wasn't necessarily his place. <laughs> yeah. Oh, before we completely move off Django, I do want to say that's the one, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, that was Samuel that's, Jackson's character. Yeah. Although a story to be told for sure, I did sort of feel like maybe that's where Quentin really overstepped his bounds with with Django. I'm not sure if if that's a story for him to tell. I think the yeah. rest of it's fine because I think I think a measure of removal was kind of needed to make Django. I kind of mm. feel like a black filmmaker would get ripped apart worse for making this movie. Probably. Except I'm... for the Steven character. <laughs> uh, I mean, even look at how, like, Ava DuVernay was treated for how she made, like, she was the one who made the one about the riot that MLK went through, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I believe so, yeah. Like, I'm blanking on the title of the film. Was that Selma? Yes, yes. Okay. And like that was done by a black director about a black story and yeah, it was panned by the media and like kind of silenced and but then it also was then nominated for like awards because of all of that backlash for the silencing and so I don't know maybe it was who knows. Ah. Uh, uh. Yeah, I just it's a story it's there. Uh, those people exist within within every culture, every race. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily maybe Quentin's to comment on. No. Um, however, that being said, I do think Stephen might be Samuel Jackson's maybe finest acting performance. That was definitely a very good performance by Samuel Jackson, and I'm sure that was an incredibly complex character for him to play. But I remember watching this interview I did, I think it was for that movie, where it was Quentin Tarantino, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, I don't remember the actress's name that played Hildy, and then... Uh, uh, Carrie Washington. Yeah, Carrie Washington and Jamie Foxx. They were all on, um, I don't remember the name of the show, but it was like uh, some uh, BET show. And the amount of uncomfortable that is on Samuel L. Jackson's face while listening to Quentin Tarantino talk in this really uncomfortable, like, (laughs) I don't know if there's another way to describe it, but a jive accent, unfortunately, like. He is, he does not sound like himself. He is definitely like utilizing that code switching and then that image change that I mentioned before in all of his movies. Uh, and it, like, you can just see him sitting there, like, staring, like, the thousand yard stare of, like, I don't want to be associated with this right now because he's making himself look like an idiot. And I don't know. I don't know if that had anything to do with your question, but it no. was something I, I found in no. my research. Yeah. 
Uh, I already mentioned a little. I was I was kind of going through the filmography a little bit too, and I mm-hmm. got sidetracked talking about Django again because <laughs> Stephen. Uh, on on the so, I think it might be Sam Jackson's best acting performance. I also think it might be uh, Leo's best acting performance for my money. I don't know. I really did like Shutter the character Island. is despicable, but oh yeah. Like, Monsieur Candy is disgusting through and through, and, like, that performance that he gave is phenomenal, I will admit that. Like, because I I had been so conflicted about watching Django for the longest time, because I have this weird need to see all of the movies that Leonardo DiCaprio has been in, because I really like him as an actor. Mm -hmm. But I hate Quentin Tarantino, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I finally had to watch it. I I could no longer be like, no, I I can't. And yeah, he did give a really great performance in this of the most disgusting vile racist to be depicted on film. <laughs> the <laughs> most disgusting vile racist to ever racist. <laughs> At least in a fictional setting. Right. Uh it did it kind of bummed me out that he he got Franco Nero to be in this and then made him another slave owner. But Yeah, but I don't know. That for me that's a further example of even though he's paying homage to all of his like heroes and like cinematic like favorites, uh, he doesn't really give a shit about them. And is just right. like utilizing and co-opting them for his own purposes. And and I know we didn't watch Inglorious Bastards. Uh, right. But I remember when I did watch that one. That's where, like, that one I had a really big problem with the rewriting of the history. And that's another sticking point on why I feel like Django Unchained does fall under that, like, sort of white savior lens at points. Mm -hmm. Uh, because of that rewriting of history because uh, there is this theory uh, that I learned about called uh, the politics of representation Um, and I learned it in context with like uh, depictions of the holocaust so that would definitely still qualify under like inglorious bastards and how when even when you are trying to represent the reality of a situation and not treat it in the formalistic way that Uh, Tarantino does you are still removing yourself from the actual horror that did occur Mm. um, by creating this false image of it however well intentioned it may be and I don't know even I know that Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards are supposed to be that reversal of the history to create more intense and prolific heroes and be that sensational amazing story that is meant to entertain but I I can't get over that other point while watching them yeah I could see that I I love that they change his that uh once upon a time in Hollywood also changes history uh Mm -hmm. without giving too big of a spoiler (laughs) but um I don't know it gave me Hitler getting machine gunned in the face so I was okay with it I mean yeah that is cool it's cool to think about. 
And I know that nobody's really going into a Tarantino movie expecting realism, expecting that commitment to the history or whatever. They're expecting to be entertained. I understand that he is entirely making these movies for the same reason that a lot of the films that he's referencing are made for. Like, especially the samurai movies, when you look into other cultures like cinematic techniques they are more focused on the entertainment aspect and like heightening that suspension of disbelief through like lack of realism for that entertainment aspect and i can get mm -hmm. that but i don't know there's there's points where i feel like he takes it just that step too far and it's a really hard line to pin down because again with his like muddying of the line of like morality it's then hard to pin down the line of like where it becomes too much and his use of that like hard to pin down perception of like a character is just I think that's why I find his work so hard to be okay with is because he uses that unknowable nature as a device mm-hmm Okay. If that makes um, sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm just trying to reframe it, thinking it from your point. Cause for me, <laughs> like, especially like in glorious bastards, I remember sitting in the theater, uh, as, as I knew it was getting towards the end of the movie and starting to feel myself be kind of bored. Cause I knew what was coming cause it's history. And then it turned out I didn't know what was coming. And that yeah. was one of the biggest surprises that movie could have given to me and made it something far more than it, it would have been otherwise it, cause it got to fully indulge in, in fantasy, mm -hmm. I guess. And I was all for that cause otherwise I knew what was coming. Um, and I didn't want to know what was coming at the end of it. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> But for me, I guess that leads back into, like, that predictability of all his movies. Like, when you go into a Tarantino film, you know that certain number of things are going to happen. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I think he's such a gross person that I think his <laughs> art is gross. <laughs> or something. Um, <laughs> on the subject of Inglorious Bastards, that's where I first met Christoph Waltz and Hans Landa uh, maybe has some of the best dialogue of any character I've ever seen on screen. I could For... hang on his every word in, in Glorious Bastards. And I think it's partially just because of Christoph Waltz's performance and he is so effortlessly charming in it, but yeah, maybe not Definitely the words that themselves. Utilization of the like commanding language but knowing that it's a gross person on the inside. Like, for me, even though Monsieur Candy is a wonderful, wonderful, like, contextual villain, uh, yeah, that, uh, that character for me is the one that's like, I love to hate this man because he's so bad. Mm -hmm. But also I hate that movie because of the, the, like, 
the complete stopping of the movie to introduce the backstory, which is another thing that he has utilized, like in Kill Bill, with uh, the backstory of Orinishi, uh, mm-hmm. how they just like completely stop the movie to have like a movie within the movie. Uh, it just bugs me when he does that, and it bugged me the most in Inglorious Bastards. Because there's the literal, like, title sequence and the music, like, suddenly stops and changes and it's really jarring. (laughs) Is that the, the, uh, Till Schweiger's backstory part when he's killing the German enlisted men or? I think so, yes. It's been a while since I fought. Or the, the German commanders? I believe Uh, so. (laughs) That was a (laughs) I used to know that fucking line going right into that. Now I'm blanking it after all this other Tarantino talk. <laughs> what else? Oh, Death Proof is fine. I was never been the biggest fan of it, uh, but I think mm-hmm. Kurt Russell's amazing in it. Uh, Hateful Eight, I was really glad that he made a stage play. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being super complimentary of somebody right that I, I claim to love so much right now I, by saying I'm super <laughs> happy he made a stage play like that, but... It, that's kind of what it was. I, I watched, it was good, and I guess I didn't know I was curious to find out what a Tarantino stage play looks like, and now mm-hmm. I know, and it's fine, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sucks once upon that, uh, a, Like I said, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was fine. It's extreme. I can recognize it as being extremely personal to him, um, and I'm glad he got to make it, but it doesn't do as much for me. God, I feel like there's still a lot of stuff that I could say about Django that my mind just keeps skipping around because <laughs> there's just so much Tarantino talk. But <laughs> I mean, the only other thing I would want to mention is like, yeah, the obvious point of his involvement with Harvey Weinstein and how his departure from that has then affected the perception of his films afterwards. Like, yeah. uh, I know that a lot of people like to claim that like The Hateful Eight was like his not the best film. And that was one of his first films after Weinstein, if I am remembering correctly. I think you're right on that. That makes that sounds right. And seeing that the. Oh, like, it was still of, distributed by Weinstein, but. I okay. Don't, I'm not sure that might have been the only involvement by that point. I'm not positive. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, this is... Uh, Hateful Eight was the last Weinstein one, and then Once Upon a Time is mm-hmm. the first one without any involvement. Okay. Yeah, and just seeing the drop-off in, like, I don't know, critical reception... I don't know. I know that it's probably bad that I felt so vindicated when all of that came to light for like being dismissed for feeling uncomfortable watching his films for so long. And then like, I don't know, hearing from Uma Thurman that like I was at least somewhat right. Mm -hmm. And I know I shouldn't feel good about that. Like, I know it's not something I should be proud of but i don't know i feel like a lot of people glaze over that fact way too easily that he Um, has admitted that like he knew more about that than he should have and did nothing about it 
Um, with him especially, I feel like people have kind of just stopped bringing that up too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of the things where I'm like, I, I like listening to him nerd out, but I'm not necessarily ever going to defend the man himself. Yeah. I like listening to the knowledge he has, but... But IMDb has the same information and isn't as gross. Uh, I don't know. But I understand that my opinions are very personal in nature on that subject. I just fucking Weinstein has to have his fucking hands all over so much shit I fucking love. (laughs) It's terrible. Like... Yeah, you were talking about how you have the tattoo, and I know we were talking about J.K. Rowling earlier. And, yeah, I'm I'm supremely upset that I, I'm definitely going to get my arm covered up. And I knew that, like, a few years ago, I had never considered that, even though, like, it's kind of a dumb tattoo. But for me, it was, like so personal because I connected so strongly with that media and then to be faced with the reality that like the author is a piece of fucking transphobic garbage like ah, it's upsetting so I can understand why people who do love his movies and find that like kind of sense of belonging in that style and his filmmaking why they're having such a hard time like grappling with that fact like I get it Um, yeah I just I don't know like I said fucking Weinstein don't don't need to continue excusing his behavior or his body of work fucking Weinstein because of it Tarantino, Rodriguez, and Smith three of my favorite directors all of their (laughs) early shit all done Weinstein Company and Miramax fucking I mean wasn't uh, Kevin (laughs) Smith also involved with Weinstein as well Yep. Yeah. And I know when when that involvement came out, like he started donating all of his residuals to like. A, uh, like all of his residuals from uh, the Weinstein owned uh, the or the, the early Miramax stuff and the Weinstein company stuff. Um, and if at any ever at any point those residuals don't make up this difference, then he's committed to donating i think it's two thousand a month uh Mm -hmm. towards i can't remember the program exactly i mentioned it on one of our early episodes but yeah it's for uh uh, some sort of charity that helps yeah so that's that's like a good step in like you know instead of like well i didn't you know do anything about it but i guess i'm sorry and then never mentioning it again yeah, well, that's a downer. <laughs> <laughs> I, sorry to end on such a shitty note, but uh, I, I hate Quentin Tarantino so personally that it bleeds into his artwork because his artwork is, in a sense, an extension of himself. And I know that can be said for a lot of other directors. Like uh, One of the examples that immediately always pops to my mind is Darren Aronofsky. Mm. And how he treated uh, uh, Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman on the set of Black Swan. Like, I don't know know if you've heard about that. 
No, I I do find it funny that we're coming back around to to Black Swan with how many similarities it has to Perfect Blue after I mentioned that earlier. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but so the story on that is that uh, that Black Swan is kind of in a gist about a ballerina who is like coming into her own and then like being put under all this stress and she kind of like has this mental break and she's being like paired against this other ballerina who's supposedly being better than her and Aronofsky tried to create that uh, rivalry dynamic between Natalie and Mila but instead it backfired because they're like oh you're doing such a great job congratulations like I hope I can do as well as you and like we're best friends instead of like <laughs> turning catty and being like oh you're doing better than me I hate you oh and like, That's it's, funny. It's little things like that that directors do that, like, kind of further that whole toxic environment of really easily to blur the line of consent and coercion. And I don't know. Filmmaking can easily be done wrong. And mm -hmm. a lot of times we excuse the wrongness done because of the art. And I. As an aspiring filmmaker, I'm sick of that being rewarded. Mm -hmm. like, there are ways to yeah. make your art in a way that do not harm or traumatize your actors. Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I was about to say that. Shit. <laughs> uh, no, I will never forgive him for what he did to Shelley Duvall. Uh, oh, shit. I was just bringing that up to somebody the other day. That's really funny. <laughs> like, seriously, the only reason there's that scene with the python in A Clockwork Orange is because Malcolm McDowell is afraid of snakes. Right. Yeah, that's fucked. Otherwise, that's a really great adaptation of the book. And... Uh, Although, of course, missing that last chapter. Yeah. I need to reread that book. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, we have rattled off on a lot of Tarantino, and luckily, despite what we were just talking about, we don't have to end on a bad note. We don't. Because we can still end with our recommendations for the week. Mm -hmm. Unless there's something else you really want to go off on about Tarantino. I don't think so. I feel like okay. I've said enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for it. You're making me think about a lot of these things. I, I didn't realize quite how much he repeated himself in some of these things. Yeah, like his his weird non like his reliance on the not fully executed low angle shots and like Dutch angles and like these hints of like deeper film understanding but not well utilized in his own films. <sighs> I don't know, but that's, eh, eh. I know it's subjective and that's my view of his art. And I feel like that's, that's genuinely all I have to say. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and now we can move on any, to recommendations. Right. Do you have any for this week? Anything that you want to tell people to go uh, check out? Uh, I mean, I know everybody's been rewatching Avatar on Netflix recently and that's really good. I'm probably going to do that as a palate cleanser after this. <laughs> um, 
for whatever reason, I am thinking of the Last Czar, which is this Netflix biopic docuseries about okay. uh, the fall of the Romanovs. And it's presented in both like the kind of constructed, like regular movie format when also paired with uh, historical interviews. And it's a really interesting, like, uh, I think it's a six episode series. And mm -hmm. especially right now, like, I had watched it at the beginning of quarantine. And I was like, wow, that's really, really prescient. And so I'm sure right now, uh, watching <laughs> a sort of reduction of the Bolshevik re revolution and how that all came about would be real fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much fun. All the fun. Yeah. Lazar? I'm going to have to check that out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, nice. Anything else? Uh, uh, no. Okay. Let's see. My recommendations for the week. I almost did this one last week, especially since when me and Zach recorded last week, we were only on, like day four of the protests and, and stuff was super on my mind and it's only still more on my mind um, throughout this past week across all the social medias people of course have been sharing a lot of different links as to great ways to to support uh, different artists especially you know different black artists in this time um, and different ways to support the movement in a, in a bunch of different ways um uh, and just making sure that all these stories and images are still being shown and told. I found that the one bummer is that a lot of these, these stories, these, these super sad things that have been happening are all like the end point of a lot of this shit. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, there's a lot of good information going around about how to, to think about some of the more uh, the the different racial stuff that might come up in day to day life, I want to recommend a little bit more lighthearted one that is still still touches on the issues. Maybe not from an expert, from but from some people that will try to make you laugh alongside it. So it doesn't have to be uh, such an emotional drain. And I want to bring up the podcast. Yo, is this racist? <laughs> Tawny Newsom and Andrew T are the hosts, uh, black woman and Chinese American uh, male. Uh, they both, uh, let's see, Andrew has been writing on Mixed Dish this last season. Uh, Tawny, uh, you can now find on Space Force on Netflix. Uh, nice. They're both wonderful, hilarious people. Every week they have on some uh, amazing guests. 95% uh, of the time, they're guests of color that are either uh, writers or musicians or comedians, and they go through three voicemails from the listeners of listeners asking, yo, is this thing that either I just did or I just saw somebody else do or I just thought of, is this racist? <laughs> and they just, they talk it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they joke about it a little bit. Like I said, they aren't, even though they, they're very learned and uh, have talked about this a lot and know their shit, 
uh, still a lot of the times you're going to get answers like fucking dump your friends. They're bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's a lot no, of fun I'll have to and check it can. That out. Yeah, and it can and just really help. Uh, just a lot of the shit isn't easy, is mm-hmm. is what it comes down to. And a lot of the times you end up finding out that like, if you're if you're even in the right place to be asking the question, yo, is this racist? Then you're probably doing the right thing. But you also get to hear from all these viewpoints of people that have to live this reality. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's pretty neat. Uh, and my second recommendation comes from that. Uh, one of the guests they had on, I think he's been on a few times, is a rapper comedian by the name of Open Mike Eagle. And I have been listening to his shit ever since uh, he went on Yo's This Racist. I had the pleasure of seeing him open up for Brother Ali uh, right before the quarantine started when Brother Ali mm-hmm. came to the top hat. Nice. Open Mike Eagle is amazing. Uh, he considers his stuff to be kind of art rap. I don't know any better way to describe it. Uh, it's a very uh, flow of consciousness, kind of geeky. Make sure to still mention social issues from time to time. Uh, very laid back, but not in a normal, like, lo-fi hip-hop beat sort of way. But mm-hmm. uh, very uh, conversational. Uh, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) No, I will definitely check that out. So yeah. Yo's this racist open Mike Eagle. Those are my recommendations. Uh, where can people check out shit that you do? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Fawn house designs spelled F a U N H a U S designs. Uh, I make a lot of bone art. I do sewing and embroidery and a lot of really witchy stuff. Yeah, I sometimes hang out with you guys, but I don't really do any other podcasts. Yet. 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 (laughs) (laughs) It's hard when your equipment keeps failing. (laughs) Right. Yeah, feel that. Feel that. Uh, in order to keep listening to me rattle on about shit, uh, once this show is over and Yui is unfortunately, I mean, you'll be back. Probably. But, uh, with my normal co-host, Zach, uh, please hit subscribe if you're listening to us right now. That would be super awesome. Also, if you can rate and review, that's even doper because everything is algorithms these days and that just helps out in general. Numbers count. Uh, And we would love that. (laughs) Uh, You can also go check out the website, www.generalnerdcast.com. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, generalnerderypod at gmail.com. While you're at the website, if you click the links up at the top, you'll notice we are part of the Earworm Podcast Network. Go check out the other shows. Listen to me talk about horror movies and get stoned with my buddy Danny over on Fried Squirms. Uh, You can listen to Zach and Malark talk about uh, war and war philosophy and war gaming, all that stuff mixed together over on the art of war gaming. More shows to come, but, you know, the world's on fire right now, plus there's a pandemic, so. And it takes a while to research stuff. That's absolutely true. I <laughs> And I just once again want to thank you so, so much for coming on, Yui. Thank you for giving me a platform to hate on Quentin Tarantino so openly. And uh, yeah, if you get a lot of hate mail because of it, let me know. And I would love to respond to it. 
the only per I mean, you might get a little bit of hate from my old roommate. He's up there with the, <laughs> the Tarantino love with me, and I know he listens to the episodes. So, uh, Jesse, uh, be nice if you decide to write him. <laughs> Uh, that being said, after listening to you and knowing that you have even more to say about things like his shot composition and stuff, I wish I knew how to like make like videos and shit. Cause I would love to give you your own video essay where you get to go in even more on him. But <laughs> uh, I, this was hard enough. Like honestly preparing for this was, it felt like being in school again. <laughs> Um, once again, I'm sorry for putting you through that. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun, despite how mad I got. Um, oh, and also, because somehow I didn't say it yet on this episode, congratulations, Zach and Cece. Oh, yeah, that's right. Congratulations, Mom and Dad. They got married, and it was super cute. They talked about burritos. Yay! <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll have to hear more from the horse's mouth for sure next week for sure well thank but you for again for week, having me on oh anytime you want to come on feel free to <laughs> just bug Zach All I right. certainly don't mind uh, <laughs> but for this week I'm Tyler and I'm Yui and I dismissed <laughs> dismissed <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs>